netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. I'm Jeff Huser. We do several podcasts that you can check out by visiting fxguide.com slash podcasts. This podcast is the one where we talk to top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. Today, we'll be speaking with Trent Claus from Lola, where he was visual effects supervisor on the much-anticipated film Avengers Age of Ultron. Lola did the facial features for the character Vision, greatly amplifying the on-set performance of Paul Bettany. This type of work is very difficult, and of course Lola is known for doing the impossible, and particularly complex facial work, so we're anxious to hear this conversation. Before we get to that, I wanted to say that some of our regular listeners may have noticed my absence from introducing this podcast over the past few months. Well, I had a little serious health issue that I'm happy to say I'm doing much better today, and my prognosis is good. One of the ways that I kept sane during this downtime was thanks to our sister site, FXPHD. I know that sounds like an awkward transition to a promo, but seriously, being able to keep up on software in the industry was such a great way to spend some of that unexpected downtime. So anyway, we just started a new term, April 1st, and includes courses. The ones that jump out to me are things like new compositing best practices, a CG integration course in Flame, and a virtual reality boot camp, which I think is very exciting. There's a lot of movement in the virtual reality world, and I think getting up to speed on some of the techniques is wise for everyone. There's a lot of other new courses over there as well as vault courses, and memberships start as low as $299. So head over to fxphd.com to explore for yourself. So now let's get to that conversation with Mike Seymour, interviewing Trent Claus from Lola on Avengers Age of Ultron. Trent, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, where did you guys first get involved in the new uh, film? We started doing some R&D way back in, let's see, April of 2014. Um, we started doing some preliminary tests and also discussing with production about um, um, things to keep in mind during production, you know, like, um, uh, they wanted to discuss with us what, uh, what makeup would be, um, most beneficial to us and, and, um, how to, um, uh, outfit him in the prosthetics and that sort of thing that would be most beneficial for the work that we would uh, end up doing. And given that he's a cranberry purple, what was the best uh, solution for to have on set? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> um, uh, back then, of course, the uh, the final look had yet to be determined. So, um, as we always do, we we did our best to uh, anticipate what uh, what we would need. Um, what we ended up settling on was was sort of uh, like you said, a, a cranberry uh, kind of um, plummy reddish purple color um, that we sort of um, hoped would be as as close to the final color that that they would want as as we could get. Um, but it was also important that it wasn't um, too reflective. Um, there can be um, uh, a, a real problem with um, trying to make very reflective skin paint then look like skin. Uh, it just looks like uh, paint on skin. Um, so uh, trying to get uh, the right consistency was, was important. Um, and then uh, with the, the prosthetic as well, we wanted... Um, uh, to be sure to cover up certain areas, and then we wanted to be sure to uh, leave certain other areas uncovered because um, it uh, it would actually create more work uh, in the end. But on set, Paul the actor was wearing a complete sort of uh, facial set of makeup and prosthetics, right? It wasn't as if he was acting 
uh, with his own normal skin color with dots on his face or anything? No, no. He uh, he very much so was wearing the the full uh, full thing. The poor guy had to go through uh, a lot of makeup. Um, there was uh, he had a uh, scalp uh, and head prosthetic that went from his forehead around his ears uh, all the way down um, over his neck and onto his shoulders uh, and then he also had a small chin piece on and then um, his entire face and neck and uh, uh, sternum and shoulders were uh, painted that uh, that reddish color considerably more than he needed to play say Jarvis <laughs> yes considerably more um, <laughs> he, he probably could have showed up in his pajamas for <laughs> so we got to speak to Chris Townsend and he brought up a really interesting point I wanted to discuss with you, which is um, basically the entire industry has worked really hard to approach digital humans so as to say that they are not um, falling into the uncanny valley, that they are in fact, you know, sort of appealing and, and everything else and not off-putting. And yet uh, Chris's uh, sort of mantra i guess was to see if we couldn't approach the uncanny valley or you couldn't approach the uncanny valley from the other side in other words take a photographed actor and make them look a bit more uh unreal a bit more uh synthetic and a bit less human which is kind of got to be a pretty odd brief for you guys isn't it yeah that was definitely one of the most unique uh features of of this project is it was exactly that it was um taking a real live human shot practically and through visual effects, making him look less human and more CG, ironically. Uh, they, um, uh, Chris really would, wanted to find a look for Vision that was this indefinable, uh, otherworldly being uh, that wasn't, um, wasn't human, it wasn't a robot, uh, and likewise with... Uh, um, the audience being able to guess how it was done. Uh, we, w- we wanted to find a look that um, didn't look like it was done with makeup, but also didn't look like it was done with uh, all CG. So somewhere in that, um, that middle ground that uh, uh, is a very, uh, a, as we found out, a very difficult place to, to take a live character. It seems to me that there are two aspects of that that would be really hard. Firstly, obviously, there is no reference. You can't sort of point to, you know, well, we went back to nature or we went to, uh, you know, the real actor or, you know, anything else because you literally are trying to go somewhere in the middle. And then secondly, even if you've hit that in a shot and you get, you know, Chris and everyone to sign off on it, then you've got to consistently get to the same place. And we're talking about real shades of subtlety here. Yeah, very very uh, fine shades of subtlety. Um and it, and more than that, it was the uh, um, like the textures and the materials and things like that too. It was um, uh, a mandate that uh, his skin should never be skin, um, but it should never be rubber or it should never be uh, silk or or anything like that. It was um, um, so, it, like you mentioned, you couldn't uh, point to a, a photo reference of a material and say make it look like that. Uh, you had to find something in between this one and that one. Uh, likewise, with the metal alloy that covers part of his head and his neck, uh, it, it was never supposed to be metal exactly. It was never supposed to, you know, you weren't supposed to be able to look at it and say that's aluminum. Um, but uh, it was supposed to be somewhere 
not quite skin, not quite metal. Uh, um, it bends more like skin, but it reflects more like metal, you know, that sort of thing. It was uh, uh, quite the trick to, to, to finally settle on uh, a look for, for, all, for everything, because you wanted it um, uh, to find that middle ground, but also to look cool. You know, you want everything to look good. I mean, I think he does look really cool. Um, if we could just break down a shot just so we understand the collaborative nature of the effort that was involved. So if we talk about like the birth of Vision or, or one of the sequences where Vision's sort of, um, uh, you know, bouncing around, I don't want to discuss the plot per se, but in terms of that coming together, there's a combination of companies, uh, including yourselves, that, um, that contributed to Vision, wasn't there? Yeah, there were. Um, uh in addition to ourselves, there were, there was um, other artists working on um, his body uh, when he's uh, newly formed. You see um, more of him than you do through the rest of the movie, and and that was the uh, the work of uh, of another studio. I think it was and, Frame uh, Store, wasn't it? That uh, that sequence. Um, and then I think also his cape was later on uh, handled by the team at uh, ILM again requiring special material properties. Um, but, I mean, that's terrific that you guys are collaborating together so much as a, as a team. Yeah, he really was a, a collaborative effort. They, um, they knew that they wanted us working on the, the facial features, and they knew that uh, they wanted um, the other team working on the, the creation of his body and, and then likewise with the cape. So if we can just now zoom down on his face, uh, because obviously that's the stuff that is both where the performance is really coming from and also it's the work that you guys did. One of the things that I just loved about him in an extreme close-up is his um, his eye, <laughs> or his eyes, but um, yeah. the subtlety of what's going on in his eyes. Can you just talk to us about that? Because that really was a cracker of a, a sort of fine detail. Oh, thanks. Um, well, yeah, we uh, in our R&D process, we went through... Oh, probably a couple dozen different eye designs uh, that we presented to production. Uh, most of those were um, done with matte paintings. Our um, matte painter Rob Olson did um, uh, quite a few different concepts, and then um, I settled on um, the the one that ended up in the movie. Um, by I, I chose that one because um, the way that Rob had designed it was this uh, series of concentric circles, kind of emanating out from the pupil. And it looked to me like uh, if um, they were um, uh, cut apart in compositing and made so that they w could uh, contract and expand via rotation, uh, it could look like a camera diaphragm. Uh, so uh, we gave that a try and presented that to production, and uh, it, it stuck. They uh, they really liked that right off the bat. So uh, um, uh, we went straight from the that painting concepts to our approved eye design in one one swoop there yeah because it's interesting isn't it the the i mean it's not as simple as an iris because it's kind of got this rotating um like as opposed to an iris which is sort of just you know like a, a camera iris would be a very literal interpretation and, and yours is is more complex than that it's kind of more layered yeah uh for sure there's um uh quite a few different little things there's little mechanical elements um pushing and pulling, and then there's the uh, turning elements and um, the pupil expands and contracts like a, like a human eye would, but uh, it's all done mechanically, of course, uh, so that it, it, it uh, just like the rest of them, it, it finds that middle ground between 
human and robot. And how did you actually go about doing that? Did you because the the eye, of course, has to react to the optics that are the eye. So you you you've got its curved surface. You've got obviously lenses. You've got all sorts of refraction diffraction. It's got to um, really sit in the eye as opposed to being sort of something stuck on the top of an eye. How, how was that actually pulled off? Uh, well, it was um, basically done with uh, like a um, CG sphere uh, that we would do an eye replacement with. Uh, and then the uh, uh, eye design, um, we had a um, universal eye design that would then get applied. Um, the compositors would then uh, hand animate um, both, um, in, in this case, not only you know where he's looking and where his focus is, but also uh, reacting to uh, lighting changes. So they would actually be hand animating the... Um, um, revolutions and the uh, contractions um, and then uh, over the top of all of that then you would add the the more human elements the uh, 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 reflections and also the the wetness and a um, little bit of uh, tissue around the edges and things that uh, you would expect to see on a human uh, to a lesser extent I love that little um, detail line it's almost like a shadow line in the whites of the eyes uh, like just really Sort of, did you get to this design in terms of like final pretty quickly? Um, and and I guess in did you have to do it in all the shots? Because I mean, his eyes are obviously quite small on screen in some shots. Sure. Yeah. No. You can um, you can get away with it on wide shots with uh, without doing as much hand animation. But uh, all of the same uh, design elements are there. Uh, it's just um, lesser need to animate them on the on the wide ones, of course. Because um, you, you just can't see it, but uh, on on all of the close-ups, they were they were animated. And uh, and then if we move out from there to his cheeks, so it seems like his forehead and his cheeks are kind of more synthetic than say the area around his mouth, which is of course, you know, a good thing I guess because the, the mouth is so expressive for lip sync. But um, there there seems to be this sort of like fine. Um, uh, sort of texture on the cheekbones in particular. And I was wondering, like, uh, how hard was that to, to get so that it wouldn't either alias, wouldn't moray, and it would actually read properly? Because it's a, it's almost like a corrugation, isn't it? Yeah, that was, that was a very difficult uh, section. The, there's, um, like you said, kind of a corrugated or um, um, uh, horizontal pattern, pattern that's uh, applied to his skin. And that, uh, exactly like you said, it, it can cause more issues if, um, if not done correctly. And um, uh, it, it would have to be adjusted shot by shot, actually, because uh, if it's, uh, you know, it's too small, then it, it really would more. And uh, if it were too large, then it just starts to look uh, uh, off model. Um, so it would have to be adjusted shot by shot. And um, those um, patterns and then uh, actually all of the uh, facial patterns were done in compositing, so it's um, uh, this intricate system of uh, plates and layers and valleys and machined edges and things that uh, was actually all uh, created, um, for the most part, with um, uh, affecting the, the actor's skin itself. So it's not uh, so much laying... Oh, so it's uh, not like you've just comped this thing on top of his cheek you've actually tried to sort of change the specularity of his cheek, as it were. That's exactly right. So we transformed 
different parts of the skin to match different qualities of the design. So uh, we would make uh, some areas more reflective, some areas less reflective, um, and then uh, create the machined edges through light and shadow and uh, create the, the patterns through um, varying the, the shade of the skin and uh, that sort of thing. So now I'm really interested if we can compare and contrast the region around the mouth below the nose and, and above that prosthetic chin with the forehead. And the reason I was thinking about this is I couldn't decide which would be harder because the forehead, <laughs> while being kind of synthetic and having those ridge lines of the kind of uh, shadow uh, detail, um, the trouble is you actually want the forehead to move, otherwise you can't express. I mean, raising eyebrows is a classic thing that somebody does, especially when they're quizzical and trying to work out their place in the world. But by the same token, around the mouth would have tons of wrinkles and uh, folds and pores that would belie the fact that he's synthetic robot and just look like human makeup. Was it was it easier to sort of go the more synthetic, but then try and get the performance back, or was it easier just to take out the wrinkles but sort of still leave it much more looking like skin around the mouth? Oh man, it's all hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all a challenge. Uh, the uh, like you said, the the forehead. Um, if you remove all of the humanity, if you remove all of the wrinkles, then when he raises his eyebrows, uh, it's almost that you can't even tell because uh, yeah, it's we like rely on those visual cues. Uh, uh, exactly. Um, so, and then with with the mouth, like you said, there's there's so much performance that takes place around the mouth. Um, little subtle movements um, that that are very important to maintain. Um, so it was, it was a balance, you know, we, um, we did a whole round of skin treatments on the footage before we began applying the, uh, design elements. So, uh, we, we worked at, uh, removing, um, uh, uh, poor texture and, um, uh, imperfections and, uh, some wrinkles and, and things like that. But, uh, you want to maintain all of the uh, structure. So you don't want to, you can't simply just, um, uh, blur grain everything. You can't, uh, uh just re- obliterate it all. You have to, um, pick and choose what, what you keep so that there's still, um, uh, the actor there, you know, you, you still want it to look like Paul Bettany. Um, well, yeah. And, and that's still, the other thing um, is we, we don't want Paul to look like he's gone Doris day with a soft, uh, filter on there so that he's uh, all blurry and gl- and glowy. Um, cause that exactly, would be wrong yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, you. I mean, you want it to be Paul, and you want it to be <laughs> Paul without uh, the, a promist filter, <laughs> right? Um, uh, and and at you know at the utmost importance is the the performance. You know, you're trying to uh, any time he makes a subtle subtle little um, twitch with his eyebrow or with his uh, mouth or um, anything like that. It, that all has to be uh, not only maintained but amplified through the design and through the animation that we do. I mean, I know you guys have a lot of, you know, experience in tracking onto faces and, and, oh my God, I'm in complete awe of the work you've done, done in the past, but was it any help having this makeup on his head? I mean, you don't normally have something as pronounced as that chin prosthetic to track to, or was it in the end something you had to replace anyway? Well, it was both. Um, it, it was very helpful. Um, we got a lot of uh, lighting cues and um, texture cues and things like that from how those prosthetics reacted to the environment that uh, would have been more of a guessing game if, if they weren't there. Um, they also, uh, you know, did um, uh, other obvious things like, um, you know, covering his ears and uh, covering his hair and you know, things like that so we wouldn't have to deal with any of that. Um, on the other hand, 
um, it was in the end all re- replaced with our design. So uh, it did, um, in some respects, uh, create work there where, um, uh, for instance, around the edges of his face where uh, the prosthetic uh, would um, move and um, change change a little day by day. Our design uh, never does. You know, it's it's right. consistent shot every shot. Because in uh, your so, design, it's part of his head, and in their design, by the very nature of anatomy, it's a helmet. Exactly. Uh, so, um, in in many cases, it would uh, intrude into uh, the face where there shouldn't have been. Uh, a prosthetic or, or that um, part of the design. So not only would we be clean plating around his head, uh, the background, but we would also be um, uh, clean facing. And I don't know if there's a term for that, but uh, um, if there's creating a term, more... You're the guys to invent it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we would be uh, like creating more uh, skin where there, where there was none, where it hadn't right. formerly been uh, obscured. Yeah, I mean, you guys just, uh, I don't know, know, obviously the the essence of the success of the company and uh, the reputation is built on, you know, pulling off the impossible. But, man, you just guys don't make it easy for yourself, do you? I mean, everybody's <laughs> looking at the face. I mean, that's what we're looking at for the performance. And he has to act because it's not as if it's, not as if it's a, a heavy dialogue character. I mean, obviously he has dialogue, but it's not like it's like there's, you know, he's just sitting around in a chair talking the whole time and in the shadows. He's having to move and react. Um, and if he's got a synthetic body, you've got to get your lighting cues to not only be true to what was happening to the actor, but true to what looks cool when you put a synthetic body in there. Yeah, that's true. I, I, the face is very unforgiving. I, I, I mean, you make a, a very subtle change, and even if uh, the client is unable to tell you what you did, they can tell that something is wrong. Um <laughs> We're also uh, just uh, naturally uh, used to uh, identifying human faces that uh, uh, one can one can find inconsistencies very quickly. Uh, so it's it's definitely a challenging thing to work on. Um, so so just in terms of the tools we're discussing, that it's entirely two D. Um, it's still flame. You guys are primarily a flame house, aren't you? That's right. Yeah, we're. Uh, um, almost entirely flame. We had um, uh, every every artist, every two D compositor that was working on this show was uh, was on flame. Um, tell me, uh, in terms of the crew, like how big was your team, and how many shots did you end up having to work on? So we had let's see, one hundred and five shots total, and we had uh, thirty three artists total, um, and that includes our three D department as well. Right. Um, and our matte painter. Was there any uh, nature of what made a shot hard? For example, I'm thinking like interior shots in uh, a lab-type environment. Are they easier or, or more difficult compared to, say, an exterior shot um, where, you know, they're battling uh, minions? Or is it is it each shot has its own? I mean, is there any way of determining what's a hard shot in advance? Oh, man, that would make our job much easier <laughs> if we could just look at it and tell right no away. No rules of thumb, but, no? Uh, now, well, um, general rule of thumb, I guess, is uh, m- more related to movement. Uh, if there's drastic uh, head turns, uh, that makes tracking much more difficult. Um, if uh, if there's uh, lots of dialogue, you know, that uh, requires a lot more animation. 
but uh, interior or exterior, I wouldn't say one is harder than the other. They each have their own challenges, but uh, um, I I, uh, I was kind of partial to um, um, the the look of the Vision Outdoors. Um, I, I really liked how uh, uh, he looked uh, out in the the broad daylight, you know, where you can see everything. Uh, I, I enjoyed working on those shots. Right. I imagine, I certainly would have imagined that they might have been harder because of the sharp, uh, you know, shadowing and the high uh, contrast uh, quality of light from light to dark being more pronounced, causing more poor detail. I, I would have you, wanted you to can't hide, hide anything, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, and and this isn't obviously the first time you guys have uh, worked uh, in the Marvel universe. In fact, uh, you know, spectacular work on uh, Skinny Steve, which uh, was also oh, with thank Chris, you. right? Chris uh, also, yeah, yeah. Chris Townsend, yeah, yeah, D- uh, yeah. This is actually the uh, the ninth uh, Marvel movie that we've worked on with them. And so, in addition uh, to nine s- out of their eleven, in, in addition to Skinny Steve, which you know has its own particular uh, amazing challenges. Uh, we also saw the um, old age makeup that was done so effectively on the Peggy character. Um, I'm just wondering in the, in the sort of those three uh, areas where you're just radically changing form, you're doing aging makeup effectively digitally, which is, you know, even for a traditional makeup artist, one of the hardest things to do. And you're doing this kind of work, which is finding a new um, landing point that no one's kind of got to. Are any three of any one of those three clearly more difficult than the others? I wouldn't say more difficult. No, I, I think they're they all had had so many challenges uh, that, that were unique to them. You know, you've got um, with with Skinny Steve. There's um, uh, so much movement and action and um, scenery and, and things that you have to take into consideration when you're uh, reducing the body. You know, there's so much uh, replacement that has to be done. But then also uh, with uh, on him, the 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 way the the clothing uh, sits differently on him and, and the musculature is different. It's not just simply smaller. It's actually a different uh, shape. And, uh, um, you know, those are all consider- considerations that uh, obviously we don't have to do on on old Peggy, but then on old Peggy, you've, you've got, uh, such a, a uh, an important scene, you know, it's a, it's an emotional scene. It's not a, an action sequence or anything like that. So it's all about performance and you have to make sure that, uh, every intricate detail is, is, uh, identifiably Peggy, but, uh, just much, much older. Uh, and, and then like we've discussed on vision, finding that, uh, uh, strange um, middle ground that uh, uh, doesn't exist in reality, but uh, exists in this Marvel universe that they've. Created. I guess second guessing it as an outsider. I guess Skinny Steve and and Vision had the same uh, issue as we mentioned earlier, which is you need it to be consistent shot to shot. I mean, we needed it to be obviously the same character that was Steve, but here we need him to not, you know, oscillate between less real and more more robotic uh you know that uh, that consistency has got to be one of the challenges for you supervising the work yeah it, i mean consistency is very important and it's it's also very difficult uh you've got uh, a lot of different artists that are all uh, talented in in different ways you know everybody has their strengths and weaknesses and um uh 
when when all is said and done, they all have to arrive at the same point. So you you have to um, uh, kind of steer um, any inconsistencies that you find uh, back towards towards center, you know, to the approved uh, on model here look, uh, and uh, uh, do that uh, with different uh, techniques and personalities and uh, all of those things combined. There's um, there's a lot of things to juggle for for that consistency, but it's important that, uh, that, uh, you know, no shot should stand out, uh, as, Oh, you know, what happened there? You know, you, that's, that's definitely what you don't want. You want, uh, you want the audience to believe that, um, this character was, was there, was there on set and, uh, uh, for them to never question it, you know, never, never think that, uh, uh, part of it was done one way or part of it was done a different, different way or, uh, anything like that. Now, just finishing up, if I can go to what would, for most people, be an issue, but I'm sure for you it was about the least complicated problem you had, which is just color. We started with this idea of this um, cranberry kind of purple thing. Um, the guys that did the Hulk, for example, had to deal with trying to get the green right in outside and inside. Did you have the same issue just in terms of color grading out, leaving texture aside for a second, that, you know, obviously mathematically he could be the same color, but it's just he's going to be so context-dependent based on the environments that he's in and he is in, you know, night stuff to bright sunlight. Did you get any, or was that all just handled as a post grade uh, problem from, from your point of view? No, it was, uh, option a, it was, uh, very, uh, contextual. Um, there was, uh, um, a kind of, um, a distance that you would travel from the original color, uh, per sequence. So, um, you know, interior, we, once we got the approved look, you know, you knew it has, well, has to go in this sequence, redder and darker. Um, but in a brightly lit, uh, uh, sunshine environment, uh, it might, uh, not need to travel that far or, uh, might need to be less red or, you know, um, uh, consistency on the screen is not necessarily the same as consistency in the color correction, uh, uh, so it was a, a, a variable that, that had to be addressed as well. He doesn't really have a color arc per se, but it just he's just I can imagine that color would very quickly go to a to a blacker or a pinker tone depending on what you were um, you were doing with him in terms of uh, that lighting. Um, and yet uh, you'd still have to match it into the final look of the. Um, of the scene. So you are presumably grading into a sort of an, um, you're trying to get it back to some base of the plate. And then from there, they can take the whole thing somewhere or do you provide mats? What, how does it work? No, uh, we, I mean, we did the final color on, on him. Um, and then there would be grades applied to, uh, the plate as a whole. Uh, so there would be, you know, a, a um, a shot, um, uh, color treatment and then a sequence color treatment and then a show color treatment on top of everything. But, uh, the, the actual, um, color of his skin would, uh, be, um, supplied by us. And then, and then that would be, um, adjusted, uh, like you said, by, uh, by context, you know, whether it's, uh, sunny out or whether it's, uh, in a darkened room, he, he still has to look like vision, but, uh, uh, um, the actual, um, uh, color adjustment would, would vary depending on the environment. So we've discussed the uh, flame, of course, and uh, and 2D, which is what you guys are known for. But, I mean, I guess it begs the question, was any of the headgear or anything 3D? Or was it just completely a 2D solution? 
it was primarily a 2D solution, but uh, there there were definitely uh, 3D artists involved. The um, the consistently consistency that we've uh, discussed uh, wouldn't have been able to be achieved without help from 3D. They would um, uh, they created a model of the final design of Vision, uh, which then we tracked and rotomated to the shops, uh, and that would provide a guide um, uh, for all of our compers on. Uh, where the design lands, and then also um, lighting cues and uh, um, uh, that sort of thing for you know, like the edges on the uh, plates on his on his face, and uh, to know where the highlights should be honest and where the the shadows should hit to create that three D illusion. So in a um, way, you're using it more as a reference guide than any kind of actual asset to be comped in. That's that's basically right. It was um, it was used as the kind of um, starting point, uh, and then all of those surface treatments that we talked about with um, in two D compositing were done using that as as the guide. Um, and then the uh, the back of his head and the um, top of his head were three um, uh, D. Uh, they were um, actually lit and textured and um, rendered in. 3D and then com- uh, com- uh, composited into the final shot. So to, for that to work, you have to have a pretty good lighting setup to inform the 3D model that then informs the 2D composite, if that makes sense. So were you lighting the sort of stand-in 3D with uh, HDRs from set? Were they the ones provided by like a frame store? Or I mean, how did you actually sort of... Because, I mean, it's only going to work as effectively as the lighting model that, that sort of lights the, the stand-in. Yeah, we um, we use HDRIs from set to, to light, and then uh, also um, our lighting artists would then uh, tweak and um, adjust things by um, uh, on a shot by shot basis. Um, our three uh, uh, D soup on the show was uh, Carlos Fuego, and he uh, did a lot of the lighting for um, uh, the head and the, the helmet and that sort of thing. Um, but when we were discussing and, earlier about the eyes, with the highlights on the eyes and stuff, the eye lights, were they just manually re-added uh, back in once you'd done the eyes, or were there sort of 3D-generated spec passes of eye lights? Because eye lights are so important for a character like this. Yeah, the the eyes were actually all done 2D. Uh, right. So that was um, uh, completely done with um, uh, flame, so over, over the top of the design, so... Um, uh, no 3D lighting involved in those, actually. Now, in Sydney, I can see this in IMAX on one of the largest screens in the world. So I shouldn't ask you the question. I presume it was an open EXR file that you were finaling. Of course, this makes perfect sense. But what resolution were you working at? It's basically 3K. It was, uh, I believe, 3414, 2196. It was right. um, shot on Alexa. Um, but uh, basically 3K is what we did all the work in. Yeah, well, it just looks magnificent. And uh, I don't know, maybe for your sins, he's going to feature more prominently uh, moving forward and then you're going to have uh, uh, more than 102 shots to to get to. But uh, yeah, just congratulations because once again, Lola's knocked it out of the park. I just so love seeing your work and I'm so impressed at just how much it's a handcrafted process by the artists. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, uh, We always enjoy working with Marvel. We, we have a great uh, relationship with um Victoria Alonso and, and Chris Hansen, like we mentioned, and the other VFX supervisors we've worked with, and uh, we it's it's a lot of fun to work with them and and 
in each case, we've gotten to, to really uh, create, you know, a unique uh, character that uh, um, causes uh, challenges for us, but uh, is, is, is fun to, to solve. Yeah, absolutely. We really uh, uh, appreciate you taking time to talk to us, and thank you so much, and congratulations. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Well, I'm really glad we got to talk to Lola. Their work is always outstanding, and I got to know the guys there years ago, and the main guys are really just good people, so I'm really happy for all their success, and I can't wait to see their work in this film. Over the years, people have told us they like what we're doing here at FX Guide, and people asked, how can I help FX Guide continue to grow? To answer this, we created the FX Insider Membership Program. FX Insiders get access to exclusive content and expanded articles. It's a way for people who care about visual effects and the work that we do here at FX Guide to help us to continue and grow. Details, fxguide.com. Click the FX Insider tab. So as I mentioned, you've been listening to the FX Podcast. We also produce two other audio podcasts. The VFX Show reviews visual effects, both in current releases and classic films. And the RC Podcast covers digital cinematography. And our post-NAB episode was just released, which is always a really good episode, really covering all the new camera gear that was announced and... Um, support gear and just cinematography in general. There's there's so much movement and new cameras at NAB this year that you might want to check out that as well. We also produced a high-definition video podcast, FX Guide TV. You can find all of these along with in-depth articles, news, and more at fxguide.com. We also, as I mentioned, have a sister site, fxphd.com, that offers extensive online visual effects training. That'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, I'm Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.